Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week, we have exclusive interviews with our favorite BC student athletes, professors, alumni, and more. We're your hosts, Amy O'Malley and Jack Bergamini, and we're joined today by news editor Aaron Shannon for a special episode. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Today's exciting because we have a special guest, former Alabama senator and visiting professor at BC Law School, Senator Doug Jones. Senator Jones is an attorney, lobbyist, and politician who also served as a former U.S. attorney under President Bill Clinton. Uh, Mr. Jones, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you please give us a big, ba- uh, just a bit of a brief background about yourself? Sure. Uh, thanks, guys, for having me. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I'm honored to be part of the the BC family uh, right now. One quick uh, could, uh, correction, Jack. I'm not a lobbyist. I've made a point of not being a lobbyist. I am doing some government relations work, but there are some real legal issues involving the Lobbying Disclosure Act that I'm, I'm trying not to cross. But, um, you know, I have uh, had an interesting career over uh, my life. I started out working right out of law school. I went to Cumberland School of Law at Sanford University here in Birmingham. And right out of law school, I uh, was a staff counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator Kennedy was the chairman of judiciary at the time. Uh, Interestingly enough, his um, chief counsel on the committee was uh, one Stephen Breyer, who has now recently announced his retirement. So I had a chance to visit with Justice Breyer uh, fairly recently, as a matter of fact. But I was working for Alabama Senator Howell Heflin. I came back, I was an assistant United States attorney, a federal prosecutor for about four years went into private practice, stay involved in politics, and was fortunate enough to have President Bill Clinton appoint me as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Then went back into private practice before I uh, jumped into the political world with both feet and won a special election, the first Democrat to be elected from Alabama to the U.S. Senate in 25 years. And I served there for three years uh, until 2020 when I lost a reelection bid It's a tough state in Alabama, guys, for a Democrat. Uh, And then uh, up until right now, I have been a counsel at Errant Fox, a a DC-based law firm with a Boston office. Uh, I am a a distinguished uh, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. I've done some work on some mental health advocacy, but as of next Tuesday, I'm taking a leave of absence from everything except my Boston College School of Law uh, gig and will become uh, an advisor to the president regarding the nomination, the Supreme Court nomination that's coming up. So I'm very excited about that as well. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on. Um, I guess so for those who are a little less familiar uh, with the work that you do and that you've done, um, could you please give um, kind of a little little background into your legal experience on history? Um, That's right. Sure. well, you know, I guess starting out as, a, as an assistant U.S. attorney, I was just prosecuting federal cases. This was in the early 1980s. We had a lot of drug cases. We had counterfeit cases, just the routine uh, cases with some white collar uh, work. And when I went into private practice, I did a lot of federal criminal defense. My focus has always been federal court. When you start out that way, you tend to just do more federal court work uh, than anything else. And that's why I think one of the reasons I was tapped by President Clinton to be uh, the United States Attorney in the Northern District of Alabama. Alabama's got three federal districts. The Northern is the largest uh, with offices in Birmingham and in Huntsville. And, you know, it was in, 
that was a fascinating time for me. I was U.S. Attorney from 1997 to 2001. Uh, and in that role, we did a couple of really interesting national cases. One was there was a, a Eric Robert Rudolph, who was a domestic terrorist, um, exploded a bomb at a women's clinic in Birmingham that performed abortions and killed a Birmingham police officer. Ultimately, we discovered and through investigation that he also exploded the bomb at the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta and a couple of other bombings. So we prosecuted that case, or at least we indicted the case, investigated, indicted. He was a fugitive and was still a fugitive until after I left, was caught a couple of years after I left office. And, and I think he was caught in 03. But I think the biggest case that I handled ever was uh, we reopened the case of the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, one of the old civil rights cold cases. That bombing killed four young African-American girls. Um, and we reopened that case and prosecuted two individuals. It was one of the few cases that as U.S. Attorney, I was actually the lead trial lawyer uh, in both of those cases. We convicted those guys, sent them to prison. Uh, they have both since now died in prison, but uh, it was a remarkable case and uh, for us to handle and it was a remarkable outcome for us here uh, in Birmingham, uh, a city that really needed that healing uh, from the convictions that, that we got in both of those cases. Then the, the, I practiced law for a few years before getting elected to the Senate. It's been mainly a, a lot of white collar criminal defense, some big class action work that I did from a plaintiff perspective. I've had a pretty varied career um, from everything from court appointed criminal cases to some of the biggest class action cases in the country. Do you think like your experiences as the U.S. attorney helped shape your career as when you served in the Senate in Alabama? Oh, there's no question about that. Number one, it gave me a, a really good platform on which to run for the Senate. Um, it, it, my name was known. It was not very difficult to you know, to get your name recognition out there and build that name, because I, I was somebody that the minute you reminded folks that Doug Jones was the guy who prosecuted the church bombing cases or the Rudolph case, then they immediately clicked. And so that was, it was good there. But the, I think my training as a trial lawyer was really especially helpful for me in the Senate, uh, particularly at the Senate hearings that we had. I would always be um, you know, one that would go toward the end of questioning because we always went by seniority. And it gave me a chance to listen to the testimony, to listen to the questions and the answers. And even though my staff, I had a great staff and they would formulate for me these questions and what they thought the answers might be, I was always able to formulate my own in the middle of these hearings. Um, and it also gave me a, a, a good perspective on a lot of issues particularly uh, civil rights issues, voting rights issues, um, those kind of things, and healthcare issues. I'd done a lot of different things in the banking world. So I had a varied practice. I mean, I was, I, you know, I laughed and told people when I was practicing law that I was an event lawyer, that if there was an event somewhere, somebody was going to call me, whether it was a civil case or a criminal case. And when you when that happens, you you learn a lot about a lot of different things. And so it really helped me a lot when I got into the Senate to understand the issues and particularly how to deal with the hearings that we had going on. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I know um, specifically about the Birmingham bombing case. Um, I think if I read this correctly, you were actually um, at the the original trial um, back in your law school days. Um, yeah, so that's been really cool to see it come full circle. Um, yeah, that was that was a pretty remarkable turn of events. Uh, you know, I, I was at the right place at the right time to become U.S. attorney. Um, but in 1977, the first of the church bombing cases was tried. Then Alabama Attorney General Bill Baxley uh, tried a fellow named Robert Chamless. He was known as Dynamite Bob. And I, I was, um, and I can't wait to tell my law school students about this when I give a presentation. I think I'm going to do a whole presentation about this on February 28th. You know, I cut classes to go watch that trial. I really wanted to be a trial lawyer. It was great trial lawyering. And so I cut classes to go watch it, never dreaming as I'm sitting in the balcony as a 24-year-old kid uh, watching that trial unfold that, you know, some 24 years later, I would be the U.S. attorney trying the successor cases um, with two different co-defendants, but doing it in the same courtroom where I uh, you know, I watched as a kid. So it was a, an interesting twist of fate. Um, and I think that too helped me prepare watching that trial and seeing the importance that that case had to Birmingham and the greater community. Um, that, the cases like that really change you. And uh, that one watching changed me and the one I handled truly changes you as a person as, as well as a lawyer. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, kind of transitioning, um, you mentioned um, your BC Law um, professor experience. Um, you're named the Jerome Lyle Rappaport Distinguished uh, Visiting Professor at BC Law uh, this current spring semester. Um, how, how has that role kind of come to place um, and how have you enjoyed it so far? I've loved it so far. i got a great group of, of kids. You know, when they call me, I was really honored. I just got this, this email out of the blue, and I'm, I think, wow, I'm really honored uh, that all the way in Boston that they'd be thinking about, uh, uh, you know, somebody from Alabama. Uh, I, I laughed and told them last spring I did a, a fellowship at the uh, Georgetown University Institute for Politics and Public Service, and I laughed and I told the law school the other day when I did my community address that I got the feeling that the Jesuits were trying to recruit me, uh, this South Alabama uh, Methodist here, but it is a real honor. And my only hesitation about doing that was, was the preparation that usually goes into uh, 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 teaching. Uh, I've taught before and it, is a, it, it can be very daunting to get ready, especially for a law school class. And so after talking to some folks though, I came up with an idea that I would run the class like a Senate office. And my, the title of my course is the U.S. Senate Today, How It Works and Why It Doesn't. And the class is really a Senate staff. We're running it real time following the U.S. Senate. We last week divided everybody up into committees who will do reports and they will follow the Senate uh, committees, uh, do briefs for me, tell me how I need to vote on issues. Uh, we'll alternate a chief of staff, a legislative director, and we're going to truly run it like a Senate staff, except for those times when the Senate's not in session. And I got some ideas that we'll do then. So I'm really excited about it. I think my class is pretty excited about it, and they're really engaged. We've, we've gone through two classes now, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
Yeah, I guess um, it, it's all about the Senate, uh, which is really interesting. Um, is, has there been any experience um, from your uh, experience in the Senate that has most affected uh, how you teach the class or anything that you tried to incorporate? Well, we're going to be doing that throughout the, the, the year, I think. Um, the, you know, our first class that we had of any real substance, the first time we met, we, we just talked and talked about organizing. You know, when we met the other day, the Senate had been in recess. And so I asked the class to really to study the voting rights legislation that had just been defeated in the floor of the Senate, as well as the proposed legislation to change the rules of the Senate and, and, um, and modify the filibuster rules. And that gave us an opportunity to really get into a, a one meaty issue that I happen to believe very strongly about on this voting rights legislation. Uh, but also how the Senate operates and why it operates the way it does right now and how it might can be changed. The Senate today is a far different Senate than the one that I worked in as a staffer. It is not, in my opinion, the great deliberative body that it should be and it was designed to be. And I, I think the, 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 the students got that from listening to the conversation. So the Senate rules are a really interesting part of this. But as we go forward, there's a lot of things on the, on the Senate's plate. Obviously, between the first class and second class, we had the uh, resignation of Justice Breyer, which now the Senate is going to be occupied a good bit for the next two months over that nomination and getting that done. Um, and you'll, I think you'll be, we'll be able to see how the Senate is going to divide up the Build Back Better program into various committees and do that a piece at a time. So I, I'm hoping it's going to be a really good experience. I was on the uh, Senate Banking Committee, the, the what they call the Health Committee, H-E-L-P, which is Health Education, Labor and Pensions, as well as Armed Services. The Health Committee in particular, uh, the Health Committee, you can imagine, we had our hands full during the pandemic and uh, that started in 2020. So there's a lot that we can learn from that. There'll be a lot more of that coming up. So the basis that I got in the, in the Senate is really going to help me uh, prepare these, these guys who have, you know, a lot of them have interest in politics, and some of them will end up, I think, trying to get jobs on, on the Hill, either in the Senate or the House. And I'm hoping to find, build a pretty good basis so if they do get those jobs, they'll have a pretty good idea of what's going on and not be just uh, completely green with the policies and procedures. Yeah, I mean, that, the class, that sounds super interesting. I wish I could take that class. Um, but, you know, a bit, transitioning a bit here, I just find it really interesting how, you know, you, you talked a little bit about it already, but how you were a Democrat in a Republican state in, in Alabama. So how, was, how tough was that? And was it hard to work with, you know, a lot of Republicans within that state? Or did you find it, or being like, you know, the expert that you are, did you find it really manageable? Well, it was manageable to an extent. I mean, you know, the senior senator from Alabama, Senator Shelby, uh, who's been in the Senate since 1986, he's in his last term. He leaves the Senate after this year. Um, senator Shelby and I have been friends for a long time. He started out in the Senate as a Democrat and changed parties in the early 90s. But I've known him for a long, long time. And uh, so we were friends and we, we had a lot of the same views about a lot of things involving the state. We disagreed on a lot of uh, issues in Washington, D.C., but when it came to the state and, and trying to build up Alabama's economy, bring businesses to Alabama, uh, try to help the educational system in Alabama, 
those kind of things. We were really very closely aligned and worked well together. He could do a lot of things with his seniority on the Republican side of the aisle, but when he couldn't get something across, and, and folks forget this sometimes, that every state's only got a certain number of asks that they can make, he'd come to me and I'd kind of go to the Democratic side and they all wanted to help me out. And we were able to accomplish a lot together um, over the course of my three years there. You know, working with Republicans in the state was a lot more difficult because they were already gunning for me. Uh, and I knew that and I, I appreciate it, but I just, I just was steady as she goes and tried to do everything I can uh, for fo folks in Alabama, regardless of their political affiliation. And working with Republicans in Washington in the Senate was very good. I had about, I was really fortunate in my time in the Senate to have about 26 of my bills that were bipartisan bills. I always had a Republican co-sponsor uh, as a lead, but I had about 26 of my bills that actually uh, got passed by the Senate and the Congress and signed into law by the president. And that's a pretty good track record. I, I, I dare say that that's as good a track record as you'll find with anybody that's ever gone through the Senate in their first three years. And that's because, you know, I really worked at the bipartisanship, uh, tried to reach across the aisle. Sometimes I had to reach across, I had to reach within my own aisle and pull people to the center a little bit to get things done. But I, I, I developed some great friendships and I think that that will, uh, that is why I had the success that I had in the Senate in terms of legislation. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, about uh, Justice Breyer's retirement. Um, so what did you think of President Biden's promise to nominate a black woman to the vacant Supreme Court seat? Well, given my, my current role, Aaron, I probably should just hold off commenting on that right now. Uh, we might want to do this a little bit later toward the end of the semester when I get back. Um, I, I, at this point, I'm not on board with that, but at the same time, um, I, I would, this would be seen speaking for the administration, even though I'm not on board. Um, I think if you look at my history uh, in civil rights uh, and the fact that uh, in my election in 2017, the really significant uh, vote I got among African-American women helped push me over the top, you can probably figure what my reaction is going to be. Um, yeah, I totally understand um, you not being able to go into depth about that, but can you, uh, if you can't, no worries, but if you can confirm like the New York Times reporting that you will be playing this guiding role. For yeah, no, it, it has now been announced. The, the White House issued a press release on Thursday uh, announcing uh, a team. Uh, I am one of three people being brought in, uh, kind of leading the team with the legislation uh, to try to uh, lead the team through the confirmation process. Yeah, there's a, a press release that I can send you guys or you can probably get it off of the White House um, from the White House press office on, on their website. Well, yeah, that, that's really that's really fascinating that, you know, someone at BC here is such a prominent role in the U.S. government. I just, I just find that really crazy. Um, but I mean, just one another question here. You you often discuss, I was just reading up on you, you know, the importance of voting rights in just areas where polls are less accept, uh, accessible you for a state's majority political party. Is there any type of like particular leg legislation you think as, you know, former attorney, um, former Senate that you th think can address this issue? Because I know that the Democrats' recent Freedom to Vote Act would, could have possibly helped with that issue. Yeah, I was a big proponent of the Freedom to Vote Act and, um, and, and will be. 
Um, I think that what is going on around in state legislatures uh, is really a threat to democracy. And I've said that before, I'll say it again. It should not be a political issue and it's been made a political issue. But to me, democracy thrives when everybody that is eligible to vote has the ability to vote, has free access to vote that is unhampered and they have the choice. And I'm concerned that recent state legislatures have done things that is going to deter people to vote. It is gonna suppress some votes in many instances. And in others, they are taking the certification of votes out of the hands of nonpartisan election officials and putting it in the hands of very of, of partisans. And that really troubles me. It doesn't matter whether it is Republican partisans or Democratic partisans. Our elections should be pretty routine in the sense that whoever gets the most votes wins that state, wins that election. And I'm worried that that's not going to happen right now with some of the laws that have been uh, put in place. So the Freedom to Vote Act, I think, would have addressed a lot of that. It would have made sure that there were minimum standards for, or that every state would have to follow for uh, mail-in votes, for early voting. Uh, it would make a, a national holiday for voting day so that people didn't have to worry about missing work just to go stand in line to vote. Uh, it would also do things and require states that I think to make sure that votes were not subverted until the winner of the election was, was there. We, we really haven't seen the fraud that has being talked about right now. It was, it was never, the election was not stolen. We know that uh, there, there was no evidence whatsoever about that. And in fact, this was one of the most secure elections we've ever had. And it was also one of the elections where we had the most people vote we've ever had. And it was because of the mail-in votes. It was because of early voting and a lot easier access that people had because of COVID. And we need to build on that. We need to encourage people, as many people to come out to vote as possible and let the chips fall where they're gonna fall, win or lose and, and go that. So Freedom to Vote Act would have really helped that a lot. I'm hoping that is not dead that they'll still be able to resurrect it somehow uh, before the 2022 elections. I also think that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is important. Um, the Supreme Court uh, in the Shelby County versus Holder case kind of gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the John Lewis Voting Rights Restoration Act would restore some of that. And I think that that's important too, because there's still a lot of things that go on around this country where minorities do not have the uh, same access uh, and are being disenfranchised. And the freedom to, uh, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would ensure that that's not the case. Another uh, little transition. Um, what do you think uh, was the most challenging part of running for public office? And would you ever consider running again? Well, everything, every running for public office is a challenge. I mean, when you have to, you know, Alabama is in the, ends up being a pretty big state. I mean, you know, from, from north to south, it's, it's a pretty big state and it's an incredibly diverse state. And trying to get around to as many people as you can, uh, uh, seeing as many people in as short a time as you can, raising the money is awful. I would just tell you that's the worst part about running for office, particularly the Senate. It costs a lot of money and you got to spend a lot of time fundraising. Um, in 2020, we had a uh, double challenge because of COVID. 
We couldn't get out and knock on doors. We couldn't have the big events that we had uh, in 2017. Uh, I did more telephone town halls. I did more Zooms like this. And that's a challenge because, you know, I really love getting out with people. I love talking to people and listening to people. One of the, the things that I, some of the things I enjoyed the most in the Senate was my town halls. Even though I would get challenged by a number of people, I just really enjoyed the interaction. And I learned a lot from that. You can really learn from so many people when you're out and about. I think that for me, though, the challenge obviously was, you know, being a Democrat um, in a, a really conservative state, Democrats have been defined in, it, uh, in a way that was not true of me. I don't think it's true of the Democratic Party. Uh, but I got labeled as wanting to defund the police. I got labeled as a socialist, none of which is true. Um, but, the, but that's where the national labels came. So I just, the challenge was trying to let people know what record I built up in the three years that I was there. Actually, it would have been about two and a half before the campaign. And it, quite frankly, was a record I'm really proud of. And I think the people of Alabama, ultimately, if they really knew what it is, would be proud of it, too, because it was not, I did not get down in, in all of the social issues that bogged people down. So the challenge was getting that out there and you only had a limited amount of time. But, and then in, in a state like mine, just overcoming what they call the straight ticket voting. And in my state, you can check one box and vote for every Republican or every Democrat. And a lot of people just do that. I think it's a lazy way to vote, but a lot of people do it. And because of that, it's so polarized in the state that that was difficult to overcome. Yeah, were there were there any like particular Republicans or Republican senators, in, for that matter, that you were able to like form meaningful relationships with, or were able to you know work on some some policies with, and come to an agreement? Yeah, you know, it, there was some that you would expect, like uh, Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, who's retired now. He left the Senate uh, in 2020, uh, 2020, Yeah, um, Lamar Alexander became a really good friend. Uh, I was on. He was chairman of the Help Committee. We did a number of things like increased funding for, you know, historically black colleges and universities. Um, it's something you guys are probably very familiar with. If you had to ever fill out a FAFSA form, you know, that federal student aid form that's 14 miles long and very complicated to fill out. Well, Lamar and I worked for a couple of years on a bill and, and in about another year or so, that thing is going to be very, very simplified. Um, he is one. I had other relationships with uh, Johnny Isaacson, who recently passed away. He was from Georgia. Um, and some you wouldn't e expect on the other side of the aisle. Ted Cruz and I did a, a bill together working on a cold case Civil Rights Act commission. Um, Tom Cotton and I did some banking things together. So it was really interesting for me. There were some that I would totally disagree with on so many issues. But we found common ground on a couple of bills together and we're able to work it. And um, I've still got some, some good friends on the other side of the aisle, particularly Senator Shelby is still a great friend of mine uh, from Alabama. I, always, uh, I will always value his friendship. That's really great, yeah. Um, yeah, and so I guess um, uh, a recent uh, Grinnell College poll from October said that um, around 62% of Americans say that Supreme Court decisions are driven by politics and not law. Um, do you, would you say you agree with this assessment? Um, and why do you believe the Supreme Court is seen as more political today than uh, in previous decades? I, I think that the court 
first of all, I tend to agree with it because I think that in lately the court, um, the justices have become more political than they have in the past. Not all of them, uh, and not on every decision. But I am I, I am concerned about it, and I think in part the court has become a little bit more polarized because the selection process, the nomination process, has become more polarized uh, over the years. And when and, and people don't always follow the Supreme Court and the decisions that are made, except for the very big ones, but they do follow the Supreme Court nominating processes. And when those have become political, they, and, and you know what you see in every nominating process right now, um, it's a it's like a political campaign. You will see millions of dollars being spent uh, on political ads in states where they think that a, a, a senator can be swayed one way or another, and th that gives the appearance of politics um, in a big, big way. So I worry about it. I worry about the the perception of the court. I believe in an independent judiciary, um, and I I worry that that has not been the case as much uh, over the last few years, and I can understand why the public sees that. I'd like to think that in the future, the court will continue to try to do everything it can, other than just give speeches. A lot of the judges have given speeches lately about how non-political they are, but you know, the, the proof is gonna be in their decisions and how they go about it and whether or not they can find common ground as well. Because not every decision is a black and white decision they can find that common ground for the betterment of the American people. And I think if we saw more of those, as opposed to five to four or six to three decisions, it would, it would help the American people see that the court is a, a rule of law, uh, non-political body. I know that the midterm um, elections are coming up for, you know, like for senators, how do you think the Democratic Party is going to, you know, shape up in that and just on a personal level, would you ever consider running for senator again? You know, I, let me answer the first question, first part of the question first. Um, okay. I, you know, I think the jury's still out on how the midterms are going to turn out. Uh, right now, if you look at polling and you look at where things are, uh, Democrats seem to be in some trouble. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of good things on the horizon uh, for the administration and for the country. We're going to be coming out of COVID, I believe, and hopefully we're not going to get another variant. That, that bolsters the economy. Things will pick up. Inflation will come down. Employment will continue to, uh, to, to go down. So I think there's a lot of good things on the horizon, but there's also a lot of, um, of, of, of issues that, uh, you know, with Ukraine and other things that we just don't know what the future holds. I'm still pretty optimistic about uh, Democrats' chances, particularly in the Senate. Uh, but we'll just have to see how it goes. Every day is going to be a challenge, I think, uh, politically coming into the midterms. You know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I don't have any plans right now. I, I've always learned in politics, you never say never. But uh, I am not, you know, I'm not qualified. I did not qualify to run for Senator Shelby's seat this time. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't have any plans right now. But you never know what happens in the future, whether it's, whether it's the Senate or another office. Again, you just take it a, a step at a time. Politics is a, a strange business these days, guys, I got to tell you. And sometimes things open up that you don't ever expect. Uh, and other times they completely close the door on you. 
Definitely. Yeah, definitely never say never. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Senator Doug Jones. We really appreciate you coming on here, and we hope everyone enjoyed the interview and learned a little about something about politics, your career, and your background. And now that you're here at BC, that's just a crazy opportunity. And just everyone, thank you so much for listening to Eagle Eye, and make sure to tune back in for our next episode.